Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Margaret the Maid of Norway! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of Scots, from Kenneth McAlpin to James VI. Or first of england <laughs> just just to avoid confusion by making it a little more confusing uh now relevant my uh, opening there king or queen of scots because mm. we have a woman she is a woman my <laughs> lord <laughs> a boy without a winkle what a miracle this is our first uh scottish queen yes and um I'm surprised to say Scottish, though. She's Norwegian, clearly, by the intro. Well, indeed, it's a bit of a confusing one. Probably not a name that necessarily resonates no. with everybody, no. but uh, perhaps she'll be one of these dark horses hidden from history yeah. that we're going to resurrect. Yes. Yeah, okay. It's tell you what, before we start, it is lovely to be back. And I don't mean podcasting. I mean on this <laughs> side of the desk. Because uh, for those who haven't downloaded yet the last special episode, uh, the last time we recorded, we did Ali's dissertation on Edward I, uh, the Crusades and Welsh castles, Mm -hmm. and Ali was in charge. We actually swapped physical places. It was horrible. (laughs) I mean, the the episode was great. But but definitely worth buying. (laughs) Yeah, but... oh. Oh, well, it's, it's much nicer to be, be home. So, a bit of backgroundy stuff mm. from, uh, uh, for Margaret, the Maid of Norway. Last time when we did a Scottish episode, it was Alexander III. Yes. He was very successful, regained the Western Isles from Norway, mm. um, had peaceful relations with England, and oversaw a sort of golden age of peace and prosperity. Yeah. All was very lovely, but then tragedy struck. Uh. rather regularly his wife died in 1275 his youngest son in 1281 his daughter in 1283 and his eldest son and last child also died 1284 and then when did he die well he remarries yolanda to drew in a bid to sire a new heir but then fell from his horse riding through the night to be with her yeah and uh, he died in 1286 so in the space of you know just over 10 years the entire nuclear family has been wiped out. Yeah, that's awful. Poor bloke. Though mm. he seemed quite excited about the prospect of um, Yolanda. He did, but it unfortunately <laughs> proved his undoing. So, we find ourselves with Margaret the Maid of Norway. She is the daughter of Eric II of Norway and Margaret of Scotland. Now, Maybe a little bit of backgroundy stuff again for this particular parentage. Yeah. Because it's a little bit of a diversion from where we've been before. After Alexander won the Western Isles back from Scotland, we had the Treaty of Perth in 1266, which is where the Norse ceded the Western Isles in return for which um, the Scots gave them a bit of money. Yeah. But to improve relations later on, in 1281, Alexander arranged the marriage of his daughter, Margaret, Mm and the king of Norway, Eric. Right. This is the, this was the previous king, King Alexander III. Yes, yeah, so he arranged right. the marriage of Eric II of Norway and his daughter, Margaret of Scotland. So they get married uh, in Bergen. Margaret becomes his queen. She's 20 years old. He's about 13. Mm. Oh, hang on. 
Hang on, hang on. I missed, I just nodded along. Like, yes, there, that there sounds fine. That's totally normal. <laughs> wow, he must have thought he was a very lucky chappy. Indeed, apparently she's uh, remembered fondly in Norway as the fair um, queen who made their king a man. Well, I bet. Indeed. Um, a hymn was composed specially for the wedding saying, Sweet Scotia, from thee a light emerges in which we know that Norway will shine. I thought you meant him as in an H-I-M. A hymn was made <laughs> from this marriage <laughs> and he was called... Well, in fact, a her was made oh. from this marriage. She was called Margaret again. This is Margaret, the maid of Norway. Right. She's born in 1283 in Tonsberg, which is south of Oslo, but tragically her mother, Margaret dies either during or shortly after the birth. So this is Alexander's granddaughter? Yes, Alexander III's granddaughter is Margaret the Maid of Norway, who's born on the 9th of April, 1283. So when Alexander III dies, she's not quite three years old. Right, now, if I know anything about Scottish history, and I know all I know about Scottish history from (laughs) a fabulous series, Rex Factor, indeed, on iTunes, you should listen, Um, but surely... Other members of Alexander's family, i.e. his brother, should have gone back to the old useless brother inheritance way around. Well, the accession is certainly not going to be easy, but the mm. problem is the fact that there are no more descendants of Alexander III. She is the last, because all his children died. But And did he have brothers? He didn't have any brothers. He's the only son of an only son. Oh, right. Okay, so that's actually quite clean for Scotland. In a way, it's quite clean. There's quite a lot resting on little Margaret. Mm. So is she going to be up to the job? I think the first way we're going to be able to uh, make a judgment on this is to consult the Heritage Playing Card Limited artist depiction. Ali, how does she look on the card? Here we go. Well, I'm imagining Mm. a baby. (laughs) So they'll have her at about 25. Very beautiful. Blonde hair. Green Dress, no sword, crown. Okay. Oh <laughs> my gosh. That is that not? That's pretty good. That's incredible. <laughs> Blonde hair, green dress, crown, no sword. Purple uh, purple jumper underneath. Purple jumper. Now you said twenty five. Yeah, probably a bit longer than that. <laughs> but but otherwise, um, yeah. yeah well, otherwise, spot on. And you know, I'm a fan of the purple jumper as um, <laughs> Rex Factor readers will know. In fact, I just while you were talking, then took one off. Um, I'm not now bare chested. Don't uh, worry. I have a respectable blue t-shirt on. But oh, siren. But she gets my vote for that, if yeah. nothing else. Does she look uh, warlike? Does she look wise? What, does she, she any looks kind of terrifying. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, no, she looks like a an extra in the background of the Brady Bunch. I'm not sure what I mean by that. I don't think I've ever seen the Brady Bunch, but all I mean is completely <laughs> but I know what an extra in the background looks like. <laughs> completely nondescript, very good... Uh, she looks controlled, perhaps. Mm. Maybe there's some figure in the background pulling the strings. Now, you asked about um, the accession and whether mm. or not this is going to be a controversial thing or a straightforward thing. Mm. In some ways, it is quite straightforward. After his last son died, Alexander III gathered all of his uh, nobles, consisting of 13 earls and 24 barons, yeah. all the bishops as well. They all come to Schoon and... He gets them to sign the Treaty of Schoon. Mm. Basically, we can summarise it with this particular quote. 
We each and all of us will accept the illustrious girl Margaret as our lady and right heir of our said Lord King of Scotland, of the whole realm of Scotland, of the Isle of Man, and of all other islands belonging to the said Kingdom of Scotland. And against all men we shall maintain, sustain, and defend her with all our strength and power. Because this worked so well for Henry I. Exactly. Right, good. But so basically, he's got them all to agree that they'll recognise her as Queen, which is quite an achievement because when William the Lion had previously tried to get his, one of his daughters recognised as his heir, mm. they'd said no. Yeah. But in that case, he did have a brother who was pretty handy, so they were like, what's the point? And uh, this is all because she's a she. Mm. If, in, in the, if, she, if she was a he him yes <laughs> then uh then there'd be no need for all this declaration it'd just be the obvious next successor yeah exactly dear oh dear but there is a caveat of course which is that he might then sire a new child oh, yeah. with his new wife mm-hmm. now when alexander the third dies it does in fact appear that his widow is pregnant Whee! so margaret cannot be initially acclaimed as queen because there might be somebody else oh, yeah. taking her place Who's not yet been there born? There might be. Oh, yeah. Okay, so is she regent? Well, I mean, she's three years old so, and is <laughs> oh, not away. <yeah>. So. <laughs> <laughs> she's not massively aware of this. Certainly, not playing a direct involvement uh, in what's going on. But basically, they all just have to wait and see what happens. Place bets now. <laughs> Tragically, there is no child. Or if there was a child, then it either um, there's a miscarriage or perhaps it dies. I wonder in how many months childbirth. they gave that. Well, it went until November, so probably. Nine um, months. Probably, yeah. It, pro- may, it probably actually that she did have the child and it didn't live. Oh, dear. Poor. Or was still born. Yolanda. So this means that Margaret is now the sole acknowledged heir. There's nobody else. Mm. But she is a girl. Yeah, there's... This, inescapably. I mean, this has not happened before in Scottish history. And as you've alluded to, the only time it nearly happened in England was yeah. when Henry I's daughter, Matilda, should have become queen. And mm. instead, Stephen took the throne. We had the anarchy thereafter people are quite wary of finding mm. themselves with no one but a female yeah heir. so there was no white ship equivalent here though it was just bad luck all round what nobbled all his children just disease and death that is fatal <laughs> yeah that is often fatal yeah they just all well i mean and for the for the daughter margaret though the maid's mother obviously it was childbirth but for the two oh, sons yeah. just seems to be in a nice illness nice dose of death taking them down yeah mm. um but the other problem is that she's a minor, which uh, is never particularly yeah. helpful. It's O-R. always a bit unsteady. And what's more, this is a minority without the minor actually in the country, because she's in Norway. Oh, right. She didn't get shipped over. Well, not initially. Initially, she's just in Norway. Yeah. It's the only child of the king of Norway. Yeah. So she's over there, only three years old and a girl. And in Scotland, is everybody going to actually go along with what they said they do Presumably, though, the King of Norway is a bit of a boss. Well, he's like 15, though, isn't he? Oh, he is. God, I keep forgetting that. Just a boy. Yeah. But at least he's got, like, state backing in this. It's not like another noble's daughter. Maybe, but it's it's sort of one thing to have this daughter there. It's another thing to actually, you know, invade Scotland. And the problem is that there are some other men... In Scotland, who fancy their chances instead of her. Yeah. Most particularly, uh, a chap called Robert Bruce. Now, oh. this is not oh. Robert the Bruce. Well, this is Robert the Bruce, <laughs> but it's not the Robert the Bruce. Right. There's a whole series of Robert Bruces. Yeah. So this is the grandfather of 
the Robert the Bruce. So this is the father of the leper in Braveheart. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, so he fancies his chances. Another chap is John Balliol. Is he John Balliol? He is actually okay. John Balliol. These men do both have a claim to the throne. It's not as good as Margaret's, but it mm. is a claim. And in terms of a man in Scotland, yeah. they're going to fancy their chances. Bruce, indeed, raises an army. Right. Takes some action against Balliol's allies. And looks like he's um, maybe hankering after the throne in place of Margaret, perhaps thinking yeah. that she won't be welcomed as queen. Yeah. I mean, certainly that's quite preemptive, isn't it, to raise an army? Have they both, declare, have they both declared that they want the kingship at this well, point? Well, no. I mean, technically it should be Margaret, but Bruce is taking early action against John Balliol. Oh, on the pretense that he wants the crown and he could be protecting it from Margaret. And then, yeah, mm, but mm. really. Okay. So it's all getting a little bit hairy. Mm. Scotland was in peril. With an absent child queen and two rival factions massing armies to claim the throne, the country was without a leader and in danger of falling into civil war. Something had to be done. Heroes had to be found. (laughs) Six men were chosen to keep the kingdom safe until the rightful queen was among them. Drawn from the north and south of the country, with two bishops, two earls, and two barons to represent the community of the realm. William Fraser, the Bishop of St. Andrews. Robert Wishart, the Bishop of Glasgow. John Comyn, the Lord of Badenoch. James Stewart, the fifth High Steward of Scotland. Alexander Comyn, the Earl of Buchan. And Duncan, the third Earl of Fife. Together... These six men would become the guardians of Scotland! <laughs> that was that was unexpected. With thanks to uh, Marvel Studios for use of the <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> theme tune. There, I was just grinning at uh, Juma there, just completely inanely going, "What is going on?" I'm really. I was about to say, I really hope that in some way they've based the Guardians of the Galaxy on these Guardians, <laughs> but with the raccoon and the tree, probably not. Probably not. So, um, technically called the Guardians of the Community, of the Realm. Mm. But so what they did, they picked six men to essentially look after the kingdom so that when Margaret comes to Scotland, everything will be fine and there won't be civil war. Yeah, this is, so this is Alexander who sorted this out? No, no, they sort this out amongst themselves quite oh, impressively. Right. Okay. So we've got men from the north of Scotland and men from the south because mm-hmm. of sort of traditional division yeah. of the country. So we've got a bishop in Glasgow and a bishop in St Andrews. Yeah. Again, north and south. Uh, we've got uh, Lord of Badenoch, which is John Comyn, and uh, the Fifth High Steward of Scotland, mm. James Stewart. And we've also got... James Stewart, as in... As in the Stuarts, oh. as they all become. And Alexander Comyn, the Earl of Buchan, and Duncan III, Earl of Fife. So we've got two bishops, two earls, two barons. Mm. And their job is to basically act as kind of the regency. Yeah. So they're heads of state in Margaret's absence. Like a Privy Council? Yes, except that they are actually acting in place of the monarch. So will they have power here to enact laws? Yeah, they've got powers to enact laws, to appoint people to new positions, all that sort of stuff. And indeed, they've got the power to uh, raise troops. Mm. 
So they do take action. They subdue Robert Bruce, bringing a halt to his uprising. The majority of the magnates and the churchmen do rally behind Margaret. Mm. And as you're asking, they are able to appoint justiciars and sheriffs and local militia, Mm. all that sort of stuff. They have some pretty good successes. Mm. But they also have difficulties keeping it all together. The Earl of Fife, one of their number, uh, was accused of corruption and then got murdered by one of his relatives. Oh, okay. So they're down to five. Paul burning? <laughs> no, I think just a good old stabbing. Uh, okay. Love, Easier. Uh, the Guardians then split his lands amongst them. And then a series of local rivalries, and again, the Bailey or Bruce thing, it's worsening, the tensions are still mounting. Because without the absolute authority of a monarch, it's a bit of a struggle. Yeah. So they're doing what they can, but they still need something more. A ruler. They do. And the problem is that Eric, in Norway, doesn't really want to give them their ruler, i.e. his daughter Margaret, because he's looking at Scotland, seeing all of this tension and chaos and looking like it could go into civil war. Yeah. He thinks, I don't really want to send my only daughter into this situation. No, but... And also they owed him uh, dowry money that they hadn't paid. Okay, yes, right. So this is, this is the... Um... This is the current king, not the 15-year-old. No, yes, he is the current king, and he is 15. Okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And his advisors. They don't want to give Margaret over to Scotland because they think it's not really steady enough. Mm. The Scots need Margaret because without a queen, they can't make it steady. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Yeah, yeah. So they need to show how stable they are. Well, really what they need is outside help. They've got to call on somebody else. Edward? Well, let's see who they call upon. This is unfair. (laughs) But what an entrance. He totally deserves it. It is Edward I. Edward! Excellent. Look at that card. For those of you who haven't seen it, the Heritage Playing Card basically just shows and portrays the ideal medieval warrior king. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. It seems like a bit of an odd thing with hindsight Mm. that the Scots actually ask Edward to help in this situation. But at the time, it's a very logical one. He's very respected as a crusader king. That he is. He is the feudal lord to lots of the Scottish nobles who've got territory in England as well as in Scotland. He would been he had been quite friendly with Alexander the Third. He'd been mm. brother in law, in fact. Oh yeah, because his sister had married him, and thus he is actually Margaret, the maid of Norway's grand uncle. Oh right, yeah. So after uh, Eric, her father, he's actually her closest relative. Because all the rest had died. Exactly. Wow. So, so he should be rooting for her, right? Oh, exactly, yeah. What's more, Eric is wary of the Scots, but he has an alliance with England, and he really respects Edward. Yeah, and as of a course. young king is probably quite beholden to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. So Ale- uh, Alex's, Edward's involvement thus could be the key to persuading Eric yeah. to handing over Margaret. But also, Edward's involvement could be the key in terms of providing an external, neutral power that will ensure... Yeah. stability in Scotland. Because you don't take him on, really. You don't take him on. So Bruce Balliol aren't going to be messing around against Edward. No. So he's quite a good choice. Um, that should clear it all up, I imagine. I mean, he, he's going to go in even-handed. You know, he knows his onions. He knows how to treat people well. He'll be fine. Well, initially, he doesn't really show much interest at all. Oh. He was quite busy dealing with troubles in Gascony. Yeah, he's back time. to France. Um, doesn't get involved with the appointing of the Guardians or anything like that. However, he probably 
Yupon assumes, will have seen an opportunity, perhaps for him to extend his level of influence in Scotland yeah. in a way that Henry III had tried and failed to do in the minority of Alexander III yeah. in the 1250s. Um, now, to be fair to Edward, he may also have had a bit of a personal um, response to this because he was a similar age and disposition to Alexander III. They seem to have got on quite well. And seeing Alexander die in such an innocuous way... Mm for someone like Edward, who himself had narrowly avoided death a few times. Mm. And at this time, he did only have one son, who was just an infant, yeah. Edward of Carnarvon, yeah. future Edward II. He's probably actually thinking, oh, this whole succession business is a little bit dicey, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So actually, when he came back from France, one of the first things he does is get a senior council to recognise his eldest daughter as his heir, should he and his son die without themselves having more children. Okay, so he's playing on his mind, yeah. So he's playing on his mind. So he's maybe got a certain sympathy with the situation mm. in Scotland. He doesn't like the idea of it all falling apart. Yeah. But there's also, of course, a chance to make everything stronger because he's got a little infant son. Scotland's got a little infant girl. Oh! Bring the two together and suddenly we don't have... <laughs> no more problems. Um, is... Oh, would, that, would that be incest? Well, we've got envoys going between Norway, Scotland, Gascony. Um, apparently the Norse found Edward uh, residing at one point in Condom. I'm sorry? thought that was worth the mention. Edward uh, was residing in, a condo- in Condom. <laughs> Indeed he was. Hmm. Rubbery. Edward persuades Eric um, to... A safe haven. Oh, <laughs> phew, I knew there was one there. <laughs> okay. So in 1289 we have the Treaty of Salisbury. Mm-hmm. Edward has succeeded in persuading Eric to give Margaret to the Scots, or to him, by November 1290, on the proviso that Edward and the Guardians of Scotland will ensure that all of this whole civil war festering nonsense is put to bed and everything's safe and steady and secure. Yeah. They will also assure that Margaret will be free from any betrothals of marriage. So Eric doesn't go, you know, marrying her off to a French prince or something like that. Because he's got his eye on this other... Well, and also the Scots don't really want her to be married off without their permission. Right. Now, there's an extent to which the Scots just have to go along with this here, because initially Eric's only talking to Edward, so Edward yeah. and Eric could have actually just sewn this all up themselves and not yeah. even mentioned it to the Scots, and they'd have been stuck. But, in fairness, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. Having made this marriage caveat, Edward then immediately contacts the Pope to get dispensation for his son to marry Margaret, the Maid of Norway. Right. That's just good planning, Edward. Well done. It's good planning. It's not a contract. It's just, mm. you know... You never know what, uh, what what will happen. And what is the relationship? We, we get into that, is it? Uh, I, was, uh, I did try to work that. They're cousins of some sort. So Edward is the granduncle of Margaret. So his son... Would be a, yeah, a cousin of some sort. Yeah. But the Pope does grant the dispensation because okay. he thinks this is a good way to ensure peace between two countries mm-hmm. that have, you know, in previous years been at war. Yeah. However, thankfully, the Scots seem to be perfectly happy with this suggestion as well. I mean, this could have been an, uh, an, a United Kingdom far quicker. Well, exactly. So, I mean, it's good for Eric because he thinks, well, if my daughter is marrying Edward's daughter, mm-hmm. there's no way that anyone in Scotland's going to dare no. attack her because then Edward would come storming in. It's the perfect plan. For Edward I, his son, the future Edward II, will effectively be king of Scotland. Yeah. And their successors will be king of England and king of Scotland. Yeah. So he's done a great deal here and for the scots even though it's a bit dicey getting into this kind of position for one thing there's not really much else that they can do 
But it does also mean that they've got Edward I to help them ensure that this young girl is actually secure on the throne and that they're going to have internal peace. I can't see how you, if you're a Scot, you'd um, have a problem with this because all of this jostling about, okay, Robert, the not the Bruce Bruce, Mm. would have wanted power, but everyone else, they want the stability and it allows them to be one United Kingdom and focus elsewhere. Well, so it wouldn't be the United Kingdom in the sense of the Act of Union in 1707. It would be like the Union of the Crowns with James I stroke sixth, where you're king of two distinct countries. And that's the only thing the Scots are worried about, is that Edward's going to kind of conquer them on the sly (laughs) with legalistic mumbo-jumbo. So, with the Treaty of Bergam in 1290, they make a great care to ensure that Scottish independence is clarified and indeed that this is all backed up by the papacy Mm. so Edward doesn't go back on it. So it states that the rights, liberties and customs of the same kingdom of Scotland in all things and in all ways shall be wholly and inviolably preserved and it would remain separate and divided from the kingdom of England by its right boundaries and marches as has hitherto in the past been observed and that it shall be free in itself and without subjection. So church elections, criminal justice and parliaments, if it's relating to Scotland, it will only take place in Scotland. It's all separate. Same king, different laws, different parliaments, all that sort of stuff. That's all right, isn't it? Exactly. You can still have a same king, like uh, James the first, sixth. Hmm. And, you know, the Plantagenets have had experience of, like, Aquitaine and Normandy, yeah. and they've ruled distinct territories yeah. that all come under there. There are some realities of this situation, though. Mm-hmm. In medieval legal terms, clearly the husband is more powerful than the wife. Yeah. And when they are both little children, the father of the groom is more powerful than anybody else. Edward takes control of the Isle of Man, takes that back, and then he then sends up his rather belligerent Bishop of Durham, Anthony Beck, to go to Scotland to act on uh, Margaret's behalf to reform the state of the country to ensure the required tranquility of the nation. Well, that sounds ominous. And also demands that they hand over all of the royal castles to him. Right. It's not the best way of going about it. Well, I mean, to be fair to Edward, his logic is that if I'm going to keep everything secure and prevent war breaking out, then I need to make sure that I'm in control of the castles rather than all the people that are going to be doing the dangerous fighting. Yeah. So there's a logic Did he say that at the time, or did he just go and take them? Give me my castle. Well, actually, he did kind of have to compromise a bit because they weren't too keen. And then once Margaret got put on a ship he thought well actually i need to just agree with this or else once they've got control of her then yeah you know, yeah that's go it. Back in it and he does kind of keep up his end of the bargain he makes generous loans to eric including two thousand pounds to cover the dowry that the scots hadn't paid him right and he does secure her release so they should be really thankful to um edward they should indeed so there are preparations now for margaret to come to scotland and be inaugurated as queen at three years old uh, well, she's a bit old now, so it's 12.90 now, so oh. she's coming up to seven. Mm. seven. Edward initially sends a ship from Yarmouth, a great ship, in fact. It was provisioned uh, with luxuries like sturgeon, rice, whale meat, sugar. Rice? Yeah. I can't imagine that. Sugar, gingerbread, <laughs> rice. <laughs> I mean, whale meat, obviously, but rice? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I must have been about... <laughs> I don't know, 10 before I first had rice dishes at 7 in 1290. Uh, Sugar, gingerbread, figs, raisins, almonds. Even put a little organ on there for her to play with. 
uh, and also banners, so the ship was decked out to look really, you know, full of splendour and ceremony. So the idea was that he was going to bring Margaret back to England. Yeah. But when they got there, it turned out that Eric was off fighting the Danes, so they just had to go home. What? And they must have worked that out. Or he just, he just decided on to go on a skirmish. Maybe. So he talk, took his daughter with him, presumably. Well, she wasn't I, there I, to I, be I, taken. No, I don't think he took her with him to war, but without Eric there, you couldn't just take his daughter Good without... <laughs> yeah, leave he a might note. have objected to that. <laughs> yeah. put, put a little note on, the, on a bear where her cot was. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Edward's uh, men have to come home empty-handed. Eric then declares in uh, August of 1290 that he will bring Margaret to Scotland himself. Then he changes his mind and instead entrusts the task to the Bishop Narv of Bergen. Do we get a sense he's prevaricating a bit here? No, he doesn't, to be fair. So in September, this, uh, September, in oh. September, the ship does set off with right. Margaret on board, accompanied by two Scottish knights, mm. um, Bishop Narve, Baron Tor Harkinson and his wife Ingebjorg, who is apparently Margaret's principal lady-in-waiting. Mm. Not clear if any English envoys are present, but either way, ship's yeah, on its way. All right, perfect. Um, at Schoon, Bishop Fraser gathers an escort of Scottish knights to take Margaret mm. to Schoon, where we've got all of the lords and bishops preparing for the ancient ceremony of mm. inauguration for Margaret to be queen. Oh, God. Um, Edward sends Beck, the Bishop of North, nor- Bishop of North, the Bishop of Durham North, with uh, various gifts yeah. to welcome her. Oh, no. It's all ready. No account of the voyage survives, unfortunately. And... Uh, Rather tragically, neither does Margaret. She falls ill, and the ship docks at South Ronaldsea in Orkney, but she doesn't recover and dies between the hands of Bishop Narve. Oh, God, I thought we were going to have a white sh- a ship situation, but still the result's the same. That's... Oh, that's frustrating. I mean, awful. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like an Edward Third, you know, it, it's so nearly, mm. so nearly. Mind you, we wouldn't have had Braveheart. Indeed. <laughs> Pros and cons. Um, it's not clear what exactly was wrong with her. She may have been a sickly child and mm. the, the crossing was a bit too much for her. Um, there was one suggestion that she had decayed food, but quite a few do just say that she got seasickness. She probably just caught a, another bout of death, like yeah. the other lot. Well, yeah, definitely a bout of death. It's certainly pretty pretty heavy seasickness. Mm, yeah. Yeah, finished off by that. Um, oddly, in 1301, 11 years later, a woman appeared in Bergen claiming that she was... Margaret, the maid of oh, Norway, yeah. and that she'd been sent to Lübeck in Germany, so she clued ver- accused various people of treason. Unfortunately, it was quite clear that she was about 40 years old rather than <laughs> 17, and Derek had, in fact, identified Margaret's body when she was brought back to oh, right. Bergen. Uh, so the false Margaret was burnt at the stake. Okay. Obviously. Nice. Obviously, yeah. And uh, some people may be familiar with um, the popular Scottish maritime ballad of Sir Patrick Spens, which... Okay. Uh, Sorry, I mean, I, it's rarely out of my CD player, but for those who don't know about it, carry on. Yeah. CD player, my word. <laughs> um, it speaks of a disaster at sea after the King of Scotland called for the greatest sailor in the land to take a ship to Norway on a royal errand, mm. only to suffer shipwreck on the way home. And it's thought perhaps to be a kind of a merger of Alexander III's daughter, Margaret, and apparently the English, the Scottish envoys returning home from Norway suffered shipwreck. Right. And also this tragic mm. journey for Margaret the Maid of Norway, where she dies and it all goes mm. horribly wrong. But either way, unfortunately, not oh, that's it, of course. quite having made it to Scotland, yeah. because Orkney is actually 
even if she was alive on the shore, that is actually Norse territory. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to, to have laughed at that, but um, yeah, Margaret that's unfortunate. Is no more. I was expecting a whole other bit. Yeah, that's it. Right. Well, there is a whole other bit because now we must review her. Battleiness. Well, I ding the dinger a couple of for battleiness. Yeah. Oh, bat- Oh no. Uh, yeah, we're on battleiness. Uh, now, I mean, technically, sometimes you know we do credit monarchs with things that happen during their reign. So had to with the later ones. You could argue that the Guardians dealing with Robert Bruce is something, but in this case, and in an era where there is a direct role for the monarch, and she isn't even in the country, or maybe even able to write. <laughs> or having it, or sort of directing troops to the battle in any way. Yes, I, I fear giving I her any credit. Is, yeah. No. It's a zero. Scandal. Well, I mean, there was, of course, the fact that she was coming to Scotland to marry her cousin of some descript. Yeah, that's pretty good. Not but, like she did it, though. Not like she actually <laughs> did it, in, in that she didn't even get to the country, or that it was her choice. Yes, yeah, so not her choice didn't actually happen. Zero, really, isn't it's it? It's another zero, Margaret, I'm afraid. Subjectivity. I mean... I, so much. I fear there's there's nothing at all. No. It's another zero. Yeah. Longevity. Well, we do have to make a decision here. Right. Are we going to say that her reign begins on the 19th of March, 1286, when Alexander III died, or on the 25th of November, 1286, when it was clear that Yolanda, the widow of Alexander III, didn't have an heir. I'd go with November. The pregnancy that yeah, because that's when everyone sort of said okay. Mm. I mean, if there was if there was that grey area before, where people would have been saying no, she's not in charge or whatever, but no one could say that she wasn't from this point apart from the Bruce. Yeah, I think then if if there'd been a son that was born and lived for a week, there'd have been a week of going, you're not queen, you're not the queen. Oh no, sorry. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah, and we wouldn't even be talking about her. In which case, she has a reign of 3.83 years, which gives her a score out of 20 of 3. It's not good, is it? Dynasty! Not the program. Obviously, hmm. another zero. Yeah. Which gives her a total score of 3. Wow. Okay. Which isn't the highest score that Where we've had. Where does that put her, though? Well... Obviously not last, because there's always <laughs> hashtag remember Ayeth. Uh, he scored 2.5. Oh, we're so close. <laughs> so, so she close. even failed at being the worst. It's like King John. Or you could say that Ayeth didn't even manage to outscore a foreign yeah. girl that never set foot on yeah. Scottish soil. That's true. He is brilliant at that. Poor old Ayeth. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we can't go through with our final decision. Does she have that certain something, that lasting quality, that great achievement that we call... Rex Factor! You could argue this is Britain's first ever Queen Regnant, which is quite an impressive thing. Is it? Well, because you think in England, when Tilda didn't get crowned, and then it's not until the Tudors that we actually get... Well, hang on. On what instance do we normally count a reign if they haven't yet been crowned. I mean, yes, the the argument against that as a big deal is that some historians would 
suggests that she shouldn't actually count. Mm. Because, as you said, uh, she wasn't actually inaugurated at Schoon, and it is quite an important ceremony for the Scots. We saw when Alexander II became king, and he was quite young, and he was crowned within like a day because they saw it so important. Because there was a dynastic threat, so they mm. wanted to get him crowned as soon as possible. So, in that sense, you could argue, well, the the inauguration bit at Schoon is actually a crucial part of being a monarch. Or she was so obviously the only candidate that it wasn't such pressure. Mm. So some say she should be known as the Lady of Scotland, a bit like Ethelfled, Lady of Mercia. Why Lady instead of Maiden? Um, I like Maiden. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's just sort of her nickname, but I think Lady of Scotland as in to recognise that she's important, but she wasn't actually. Lady Jane Grey. Mm. Or Queen Designate, rather than Mm. Queen Regnant, i.e. she was due to be Queen. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. She wasn't. On the other hand... um, Eric and Edward are both referring to her as being the Queen. Yeah. Edward himself, of course, it was two years before he was back in the country, because mm. his dad died when he was on the Crusades. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, and that was all accepted. And that was fine. And actually, James I of Scotland, we'll see later, he actually is in England for quite a while before he becomes King of Scots and is crowned, but there's no suggestion that his He's reign king, didn't yeah. begin yeah. until the coronation. His reign begins... Yeah, we've just got that grey area while Mm. there might be a boy. So, you know, and I think she's got a card. I mean, I don't know what more (laughs) you can ask for to be official. But that's what we do. Does she get the Rex Factor? No. No, I don't think there's really a strong argument to be made there. Poor poor Margaret, the maid of Norway. That's a shame. So much that could have been. Yeah, so nearly, so nearly. But it is a no. She does not have... The Rex Factor. Uh, what are we putting for cause of death? We've got a little spreadsheet here, a little peek behind the curtain. Oh, yes. no, I mean, natural causes seems a bit dull when I can mm. write seasickness. I put seasickness. <laughs> I seasickness. Boat. <laughs> cause of death, boat. As a sailor, I can't imagine you're going to give the Rex Factor somebody that died of seasickness. No, that's hopeless. But that is not it for our episode today. We've Say got, what? We've got a bit more to do. Okay. The Great Cause. Are you talking about the band? Because <laughs> I've got their best of. They are pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> the cause in question is what on earth is going to happen now that the only heir is dead? Mm. She obviously doesn't leave any children. Alexander III's descendants are gone. So there's Alex- literally no one else. Alexander III was the only son of an only son. So there's no legitimate royal survivor from the last three generations of monarchs. So they're going to go back up that the tree to that third one and see the brother? They've got to go up in a pretty complicated way, but how exactly do they decide it? What's the rules? Bruce, Robert Bruce, obviously, is ever belligerent in this circumstance. Mm. He hadn't actually been at Schoon, ready to welcome her. Ooh. Um, but he does arrive the next month with a rather large following, perhaps hoping to just get himself inaugurated. Yeah. Um, he was stopped by Bishop Fraser, John Comyn, who's now alive, uh, Balliol, and I think Beck is probably up there as well, the Bishop of Durham. So they prevent him just, you know, sneaking in and taking the throne for himself. Um, Bruce is a bit sulky when they don't let him be king, so he publishes the appeals of the seven earls, attacking Fraser and Comyn and various others, plotting to make Balliol king oh. against the um, liberties of the community yeah, of the realm. Yeah, best form of attack, defence. Blah, blah, blah. Badiol himself was staying in England, but starting to style himself as king. He writes to Beck, promising him Scottish lands in return for supporting his claim. So you can see both sides of this are now starting to get ready 
to make some kind of campaign for themselves. The guardians of Scotland themselves are now being forced to take sides now that there isn't a definitive heir. Oh, right, they've now got to choose. They've now got to choose. So, Bishop Fraser, one of the guardians, writes a slightly desperate letter about how the country was disturbed and that uh, with troops massing there was fear of a general war and a great slaughter of men. So he asked for direct help in saving the country from war and helping to determine who should be the rightful king. Who's he saying send that to? His name's Edward. <laughs> Edward the First. Brilliant. That's quite a good anthem for Edward. Once again... Edward is the neutral friend. The Scots turned to him. He'd been something of a diplomat in resolving disputes in Europe in previous years. He's the only man really powerful enough to be able to prevent this escalating or descending rather into civil war. He's also a respected legal reformer in England. Yes, he certainly is. So he knows his law stuff. He's quite into this. So thus, he's actually quite a good man to judge this quite complex legal case. And he's the the biggest potato around, isn't he? Like everyone else is just lords and barons and nobles he's hmm. he's got he's got his uh, red hot direct line to god isn't he exactly and he's been pretty helpful thus far yeah he's a bit disappointed by events that have happened before because um you know margaret's death doesn't help him in any way he'd been about to secure the queen of scots as his daughter-in-law his son as the future king of scots in effect and it's snatched away from him, this double succession. Mm, that is really frustrating. And indeed, his own beloved wife dies later that oh, year yeah. in 1290. So it's, it's been very difficult oh. for Edward at this time. Mm. But 1291, he sorts himself out, and he calls for a Scottish Parliament to settle the succession. So he's going up north, he's going to sort it all out. That's reasonable. Exactly. So the Scots gather at Berwick, which is Scotland mm. at this time. But Edward then sends them a message asking them to come south to Norham which is a heavily fortified castle belonging to Beck, the Bishop of Durham, in northern England, Mm. which is obviously going against the Treaty of Bergen, where it was agreed that there wouldn't be any Scottish parliaments outside of Scotland. Oh, yeah. But Edward says, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Don't worry about it, trust me. So, they come to Norham, get ready for Edward to make a nice quick judgment over who should be king. He announces himself the Lord Paramount of Scotland and demanded that before he gave judgment, they would pay him homage as overlord of Scotland, or else prove that he was not their overlord. So he doesn't ask, he doesn't say to them, this is why I'm your overlord. He says, I am. Prove me wrong. Does anyone try? Well, the Scots were ready for the potential that he might do a slightly sly legalistic attempt to make them do homage. They're kind of ready for that, but not such a naked assertion (laughs) of power. What's more, he's backed up by quite a large military force that he's brought with him, including a fleet of Lindisfarne. Right. So they're a little bit shaken by all of this. Mm. Now, they didn't realise that Edward was rather more Machiavellian in his approach to this than he was perhaps to the initial affair with Margaret. At Waverley Abbey in 1291, um, sorry, the chronicles of Waverley Abbey in 1291, uh, said that apparently before he went to Scotland, Edward declared to his magnate present that he intended to subjugate Scotland as he had done Wales. Yeah. Probably more of a feudal submission rather than a military conquest, but nevertheless he decided right. Although, to be fair, he did try the feudal system first with Wales... And if that didn't work, yeah. then... <laughs> now, he knew that the Scots would probably refute any suggestion he made of feudal dominance, but he'd learnt from his mistake in 1278 when he'd had this massive ceremony 
um, where he brought Alexander III to Westminster Abbey and Alexander was meant to pay him homage. And Alexander just said, well, I'll do homage for the English lands, but mm. Scottish lands is of God. I can't do homage for that. Mm. This time, Edward's coming prepared. Yeah, He basically writes to all of the um, monasteries in England and asks them to provide information from their chronicles touching in any way our realm and the rule of Scotland. What? So he's basically asking them to trawl through their archives and find anything which gives him right to say that he should be considered the overlord of Scotland. Right, okay, and they'll obey him? Well, the English monasteries. Oh, the English monasteries, right. And it's not unprecedented to make claims based on history, but this is kind of the first time that a monarch, an English monarch, is using the chroniclers of the monasteries as if it's case law. Yeah. In effect. Yeah. So, effectively, what he does is, before he goes to Scotland, he compiles the 13th century dodgy dossier. <laughs> he ignores Alistair Campbell, a Scottish name! <laughs> exactly. Anything that suggests that he isn't, obviously he ignores, but any little snippets yeah. that he's got. Are you suggesting he's cherry-picking evidence? Well, I, I wouldn't dare question no. Edward's legal response. So, this is what the Scots are dealing with. Mm. And they hadn't expected this, so they've got to think on their feet. Right. Now, the first man to pick his jaw up from the floor is Bishop <laughs> Wishart, one of the guardians, and he quite bravely asserts that only a king could answer Edward's demands in terms of a, yeah. the whole nation doing homage, so none of them are qualified to give the submission that he actually asks for. That's quite brave, and that's a funny little grey area he's picked up on. irritates Edward because it's a legalistic argument yeah. that's technically true, Yeah. <laughs> which he doesn't like to be caught out. So he could have said, that's my point, I'm king. Yeah. <laughs> He rejects Edward's claims about being demonstrably the overlord, saying that Scotland is not held in tribute or homage to anyone save God alone, and the burden on proof should be on him rather than on them. Yeah. Which, again, is you know, kind of fair enough. Yeah. He also reminded Edward of a prophecy of Merlin that uh, a covetous king would emerge against whom the Scots and Welsh would, re- uh, would unite to regain their lands. Merlin? As yes, in that Merlin, yes. Pointy hat wand? Yes. Right. I mean, it's all very shaky evidence, isn't it? It is. Edward's response is essentially to shrug. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm going to post that gif on Facebook that Edward, that Graham just splashed up in front of me. Brilliant. Alan Partridge shrugging. Um, He basically tells Wishart that they are perfectly welcome to prove their independence by force of arms. Okay, so let's just fight me for it. And he gives them three weeks to reply. Furthermore, he informs them that he wasn't look, going to be looking at two claimants, but in fact he'd found 13. Of, of his proof? of No, of cl- people claiming the Scottish throne. So rather than it being this very quick decision between Balliol oh, and Bruce, right. he's like, actually, I've got loads to go through. So he's, he's diluting their claim by saying there's loads of you. Yeah. Wishart responds that um, for Edward to threaten to invade a defenceless country rather goes against his reputation as a crusader. Mm, I don't know. Think, think it goes well, as a moral crusading oh, right. Christian king, Edward predictably was rather enraged by this, and effectively says that he'd lead a crusading army against the Scots. Oh, don't antagonise him! That's the last thing. <laughs> you want a crusade? I'll lead a crusade against your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is exactly what he meant. You can imagine ten men having to hold Edward back from yeah. invading single-handedly. That's such a silly, silly thing to say to Edward, and such a silly response from Edward. I'm sorry, Edward. But the outcome is quite disappointing for all concerned. The Scots thought they were going to get a quick resolution and instead there's a threat of war or at best a lengthy process to work through all the claimants. Mm. Edward thought he'd get the submission of the country and instead 
he gets an argument. Mm. And in fairness to him, Robert Bruce had actually written to him indicating that he and his supporters would be supporting Edward's claims of dominance over Scotland. Why would he do that? Because he's trying to get his way in with Edward to secure his succession as King of Scots. So he thinks, I'm nice to Edward. Okay. You'll make me king. Good idea. But Edward didn't realise that he wasn't speaking for the whole country, so he probably thought they were all <laughs> perfectly yeah. fine with this. So this is still the uh, the father of the man with leprosy? Yes, still the grandfather of the Bruce. So Edward changes tack. Rather than demanding the submission of the whole nation, he instead requires that any candidates, any claimants for the crown, have to swear homage to him on an individual basis. Right. So, so, as an individual, they will recognise Edward as their feudal lord. So, so he's not asking then the office to do it, but the person themselves. Mm. Right. But the reality is that whichever one of them becomes king will have formally recognised Edward as the feudal lord. And if they go against it, he's got an excuse to go in. Yes, and if they don't sign up to it, then anyone that do- does is going to get the kingdom instead of him. That's good. Mm. That's wily, isn't it? So they have to sign to this, saying that the noble prince, Sir Edward, by the grace of God, King of England, has shown us by good and sufficient reasons that to him belongs and that he ought to have the sovereign lordship of the said kingdom of Scotland and the cognizance of hearing, trying and determining our right. We, of our own will, without any manner of force or constraint, will concede and grant to receive justice before him as sovereign lord of the land. Yeah. So, Bruce is straight in there, submits, Mm -hmm. and the others soon follow. Balliol is the last one. He'd been holding out, thinking that he was probably going to win anyway, but he realises that if he doesn't... He's in trouble. He's in trouble. Now, after six days, there's still a bit of a standoff with some of the people in Scotland, Wishart and others still refusing some of his demands, most particularly giving him custody of the castles. Oh, he still hasn't got those? He still hasn't got the castles, and they're still not ready to accept that he is effectively now ruler of Scotland in some way. And he's appointing and blah, yeah. So he does find a way around the issue by demanding them not as overlord of Scotland but instead as effectively guardian on the basis that he himself could be a claimant to the throne. What? How how does he swing that one? Well, because Edward I is descended from Malcolm III because one of Malcolm III's daughters married Henry I. Hmm. And right. so Henry II, the Plantagenet dynasty, are all descended from a king of Scots. Yeah, and his son being related. Exactly. Yeah. So thus, Edward can effectively say, look, I'm one of the claimants, I'm going to look after things until somebody else has decided, I'm not, I'm not your overlord, <laughs> technically. So I'm one of the claimants, and I'm going to decide who the successful claimant is. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. He doesn't put his claim forward in terms of a candidate, okay, right. but it's a kind of a, a slight nicety that means that the Guardians accept it. So he comes to Scotland, receives the seal of office, he gets custody of the royal castles, and he promises that he would return them all within two months of electing a successful claimant. So he's done it? He's done it. Oh. So we come to the great cause itself, choosing hmm. who's going to be king right now i'll put up a family tree on wordpress rexfactor.wordpress.com which might be useful to refer to and i'll post a link to it on facebook there are no legitimate surviving descendants of alexander the third alexander the second or william the lion right all the previous monarchs so the most senior line of descent in terms of a legitimate royal person mm-hmm. is a brother of william the lion yeah. that didn't become king namely David of Huntingdon. Oh, yeah. Didn't we talk about him? We did. We did. 
So his son died childless, but he has three daughters, all of whom produce children. Mm. We also have legitimate descendants of the sisters of William the Lion and David of Huntingdon. Oh, yeah. So they're not quite as senior, but they're also legitimate claimants. Not not as legitimate, though. Like, the other ones would take precedence, wouldn't they? They take precedence, but it's legitimate in the sense that it's not from a... Perkin Warbeck. Yeah, or bastard, basically. <laughs> Naughty. Well, th- there are some of these. <laughs> so, we've got John Balliol. Yeah. Descended from the eldest daughter, Margaret, who married Alan, the Lord of Galloway. <laughs> the one that you laughed at because he was called Alan. <laughs> I just did it again. <laughs> So this is the most senior by primogeniture. Yeah. So, okay, so Balliol does have the best claim. He does, by primogeniture. The next one, Robert Bruce, is the son of David's second daughter, Isabel. Now, he's older than Balliol. He is a grandson of David, whereas Balliol is the great-grandson. Oh. So Bruce is closer by what's called nearness of blood. Right, yeah, fewer generations, generations separated. Away. Okay, so he yeah. argues that primogeniture doesn't apply to women. It's mm. just man to man. Therefore, Balliol's claim isn't as good, and instead, it should be him. It's quite a good argument. Mm. He also claimed that Alexander named him as heir before he had any children. But that's acts of desperation. Then there's John Hastings, grandson of David's third daughter. Uh, Ada, he argued that under primogeniture, territory with no male heir should be split equally among the daughters or their descendants. So he isn't saying that he should be king of Scots, he's saying that Scotland should be split between him, Balliol and Bruce. Oh, that's not going to be popular. Perhaps not the most uh, (laughs) persuasive argument. We then have Florence V, Count of Holland. Where's he popped up from? He's the descendant of the eldest sister of William the Lion and David of Huntingdon. Then we have Humphrey de Bowen, mm-hmm. descended from the second sister, um, though he doesn't make a formal claim due to the fact that there's a conflict of interest given that he's the constable of England. Right, so he's Would totally be. under um, Edward's thumb. Exactly. Mm. Then we have John Comyn, who is one of the guardians, known as the Black Comyn. He is descended from Donald Bain. Oh, wow. Donald III, so that's the younger brother of Malcolm III. That's so a while back, isn't the it? The great, great... Thing. Great, 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 great grandson. That's not looking good. So Donald Bain having been king from 1093 to 97. So, I mean, to be honest, that's not an awful lot better than Edward's first claim. Yeah, yeah. We also have quite a few who are illegitimate descendants. Oh, they haven't got a hope, have they? So, uh, from William the Lion, we've got Patrick Gallithley, William de Ross, Patrick the Earl of Dunbar, William de Vesey, and Roger de Mandeville. Mm. From Alexander II, we've got Nicholas de Soules. And from William's father, Prince Henry, Roger de Pinkney. <laughs> and also, Eric of Norway briefly made a claim. Wow. His claim was through ascendancy. So he argued that as the father of Margaret, her claim would pass to him as the next nearest relative. How do they feel about that? It doesn't get a lot of time. Though mm. that is essentially... A similar claim that Harold Hardrada made. Is it? In 1066. His claim was actually that he'd made an agreement to share territories with somebody who had an agreement that he kind of had a claim to the English throne. <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's going to get a lot of traction. No, on. I mean, Hardrada's main argument was that he was just going to come and kill everybody. Yeah, it's a good one, that one, though. So we have the proceedings. After the candidates all submit their claims, Edward appoints 104 auditors... So this number is based apparently by um, the court deciding inheritance disputes in ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. So he chooses 24, 
English ones. 40 are chosen each by Bruce and Balliol. Why do they get 40 each? Because they've got the best claim. Perhaps acknowledging they've mm. got the best claim. And then Edward himself sits as president and so the 105th auditor. Right, okay. Four sittings to decide the issue. The first one was at Norham from the 5th to the 13th of June in 1291. Then there were three more at Berwick. First from the 3rd to the 12th of August. Uh, then from the 3rd of June in 1292 to the 3rd of July. So that's quite a long uh, delay. And then finally from the 14th of October to the 17th of November. 1292. God, I bet these were torturous affairs, aren't they? So, despite all these claimants, really, there are only four candidates that have got much of a chance, and obviously Balliol and Bruce have got the best claims. The reason for the initial big delay, so that's um, after August 1291 to June 1292, Mm. was because of Florence, the Count of Holland. Dies? No, his argument was based on the fact that David of Huntingdon had relinquished his claim to the throne in return for receiving the lordship of Garioch, meaning yeah. that Balliol, Bruce and Hastings were all descended from him, Oh, therefore are irrelevant. Oh, okay, that is interesting, isn't it? That... Uh, and they claim that there's a document proving his case, but he didn't know where it was. <laughs> oh, so dear. Edward granted a ten-month recess for him to go and look for it. Where's he going to look? Like... Under the bed? Obviously, he doesn't find it, and he ultimately withdraws his claim. But Edward's happy for that ten months because it just more time that he's there in the castle. So the key questions for the court to decide are whether the issue should be based on primogeniture, Mm -hmm. i.e. Balliol, or nearness of blood, Bruce. Mm. And if it is primogeniture, is Scotland divisible or not? So that's John Hastings' argument. Are you going to split it up? Yeah. Or is it a unified territory it's a bit annoying the the weight mm-hmm. though because if it, if they had just made mm-hmm. a quick decision and people could have rallied around it quicker but this the the festering of 10 months of mm. division means that whoever's chosen troubles afoot not great for the scots no not necessarily against edward's interests after 10 days of debate on these key things edward puts the issue to various lawyers including the university of paris oh so they're going to really give a, a verdict on mm. what to do Finally, Edward and the auditors determined that it will be on the basis of primogeniture and that Scotland is not dividable. Yes, I mean, that seems sensible. Because this is, of course, Edward's had this issue when he was making his succession agreements that it's going to go to his daughter. So he said, look, in England it's not dividable, therefore I'm not going to set an awkward precedent in Scotland because this could bite the English succession on the bottom. So he was always going to choose that, wasn't he? Which means that John Balliol is declared the rightful king. Great. Everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. Or are they? Mm -hmm. Some argue that this is a stitch-up job by Edward I. The argument is that basically Edward gathered from the evidence that Bruce has the stronger case. Yeah. This is all according to John of Forden, by the way. (laughs) who is very much supporting the Bruce argument. But Beck, the Bishop of Durham, points out to Edward that Bruce was of the noblest stock and Scotland very strong in itself. Well, so? At this, the king, patting him on the head, (laughs) answered in the French tongue, saying, By Christ's blood, thou hast sung well. Things shall go otherwise than I had arranged at first. Oh, <laughs> I imagine him tapping his fingers together and going, ooh la la. So Edward sends for Bruce and offers him the throne on the condition that Edward would be his feudal overlord. 
but Bruce refuses. What? What? Whoa! I shall never, in gaining that kingdom for myself, reduce it to a thraldom, a kingdom which all the kings thereof have hitherto with great toil and trouble, quoting Macbeth, kept free from thraldom in security of peace. So he was offered the kingdom and so turned it down. And he says, no, I will not submit to you as king. Scotland shall be independent forever. Even though Edward's already offered this to John Balliol. Balliol is then given the same ultimatum, but of course, Balliol being weak and easy to ply, he submits to Edward's demands. Well, it was scrappy, but sorted. Well, I mean, this is nonsense, first and foremost. This is all propaganda for the Bruce and Stuarts later on. Bloody John Forden! But, to be fair to the arguments against Edward, there is the awkwardness that the Paris lawyers did actually agree with Bruce that it should be the natural law or nearest by proximity to blood as the local custom, rather than primogeniture. I would have thought primogeniture. Hmm. But I'm uh, I'm Team Edward, so... (laughs) Well, indeed you are. In reality, um, Edward was a legal expert. He knew the rights and wrongs of the situation, and he probably didn't really care which of them it actually was. Hmm. Um, The established precedent for the last 200 years has been primogeniture, and the vast majority of the auditors, including 29 of Bruce's 40 appointed men, back Balliol. God, did they get it in the neck? That had been in trouble. But basically everybody really thinks that John Balliol's got the best case. And I think all historians now would say that Balliol has the best case. And going through it, I think we would probably... Well, when we were going through it just then, we seemed to back him. Yeah. And the propaganda around Bruce does rather ignore all of the stuff that he's getting up to. He's nicknamed the competitor due to his ceaseless campaigning to become king. And probably even more than Balliol, he's the one that's really going for the underhand tactics. So he led those uprisings in 1286 and 1290. He'd written to Edward, pledging his support in 1291, trying to ingratiate himself. Um, He was the first to submit to Edward's demands for... So John Fordham's thing is is just totally inaccurate. And Balliol was the last to submit to this. And then when Edward declared that they were going for primogeniture, Bruce threw his lot in with Hastings and said, oh, well, if it's primogeniture, then we should all get a slice of the kingdom, split it up. That was never going to work. No. But it's pretty naked, just desperately trying to get power. But that's not to say that Edward himself is not uh, playing the situation. I don't believe it. Come on, what what can you possibly have against a great man? At Norham... Um, of course, he required all the claimants to submit to him as overlord, which means that John Balliol, as it turned out, but whoever it had been, um, is going to start as king with a massive disadvantage. They've got a bit of a Damocles sword above their necks yeah. that any point Edward can just swoop in and say, uh, excuse me, you should be doing what I want you to now because you've acknowledged me as your feudal overlord. Yeah. As guardian of the realm, this is Edward, um, as soon as he took possession of the castles, he apparently went on a little bit of a progress around the country, taking oaths of fealty from various people and various officials. He's granting wardships, giving gifts of deer to local lords, paying fees. He's establishing relationships with people in Scotland. He's working out where people's loyalties lie. Oh, that's good. All that that's sort of good. stuff. And he does needlessly drag the whole process out. Realistically, yeah. there were two proper claimants. Yeah. He has 13 or 12 or whatever it is submit their claims. There's this 10-month delay Mm. for Florence to find this document that no one's going to believe in. Mm. And probably he just wanted to be in control for as long as possible himself. Maybe even thinking, because this is now, he gets to like a year and a day 
which gives him that slight argument for rights of ownership, saying, well, I've kind of, you know, yeah. been in charge for quite a long time now. Mm. Either way, Edward ends up, or with all of this, with John Balliol having already acknowledged him as overlord. He's established lots of link in Scotland. He knows where the lie of the land is. He's clearly the dominant force. Yeah, he's bossed that situation. It's all set up the next time well well done oh no we're not doing Edward are we no we're well, not doing well, Edward well done Edward <laughs> I'd say Rex Factor <laughs> he did get it didn't he he did get he it did. anyway that is it for this episode we have now come uh, to the end we've done Margaret the Maid of Norway and we've done The Great Cause The Great Cause which will set us up for the next couple of episodes yeah how are you feeling about The Great Cause and where we are at the moment uh, I'm Team Edward yes. hashtag Team Edward um, and Pretty sure it's going to go swimmingly. Yeah. Unless that pesky Bruce gets involved. He's going to be a little fly in the ointment there. You must be quite excited at the amount of Edward I that we've got. Which is, I know, <laughs> it's just going to be a non-stop. It's very, very... Uh, the special, last episode, this episode, and I imagine the couple to come. <laughs> yes. So, let us know what you think about all of this. Uh, all of this. Um, follow us and get in touch with us on Twitter, at RexFactorPod. Do say hello if you follow, just that I know that you're a person. Uh <laughs> Because otherwise, you know, some people just click follow or you get bots oh, yeah. and that sort of stuff. So do say hello. Um, like us on Facebook. Yes, please. And get involved in the conversations there. Send us an email, rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. Or go to the blog, rexfactor.wordpress.com. You'll see um, some of the family trees to explain mm. all of that. There are also blogs supporting the podcast and polls that you can do to say whether or not you agree with mm. each monarch getting or not getting the Rex Factor. If you would like to support the podcast, you could leave a review on iTunes and subscribe. Oh, that would be really very helpful. Thank you to all the people that have been doing that in all various different countries. Mm. Um, It is a free podcast, but if you'd like to make a donation, they are always welcome. You can make a one-off donation on PayPal. Mm. Thank you very much to Dan Venders, who has done this since last time. Or you can do monthly donations with crowdfunding and join the Rex Factor Privy Council. That hallowed group. Click the Be My Patron link to make monthly uh, donation. And you get rewards depending on the level. So $1 a month, you get a mention on the podcast. $2 a month, you get a comment read out. $5 a month, you get a mug. $10 a month, a blog on the subject of your choice. And $15 a month, a podcast special on the subject of your choice. Thank you very much to our new Privy Councillors. Shan McCauley. Hello. Book Girl 20. Aaron Siegel. Veronica Wong. Al Atkinson. And Quentin Weber. I'm familiar with a few of those names. I think they're active on Facebook. Mm, active on Facebook. You also get, with your Privy Council membership, free access to our special episodes that people do. have been commissioning. So we've already done the Battle of Waterloo, the medieval knight extraordinaire William Marshall, and most recently, as we said at the start of the podcast, Ali's dissertation on Edward I. And another one coming soon. But if you are a Privy Councillor and you haven't received my fascinating newsletter, mm-hmm. let us know because I've sent those out with a new link. Um, and just some interesting... Beh- that's the other thing you get, obviously, as a, as a Privy Councillor. The newsletter with all little little tidbits of behind-the-scenes stuff. And we're going to be working on more of that to come in future, so hopefully there'll be some more extras for Privy Councillors. So, we've got some messages. Okay, good. This one is from Chad Burns on Facebook. Ah, oh, hello, Chad. He's, a, he's a, one of the originals, as I call them. This is relating to the previous episode on uh, Alexander III. Ali! Oh. Multiple exclamation marks. 
you finally get sex with nuns again, <laughs> and you only give her five. <laughs> sex with nuns should be a min of six, man. Death above average, especially considering he had to wait four years. Was it four years? Oh, well, I don't, I don't know. Nearly, I imagine. Well, yeah. Five? Is that all I gave him? That's all you gave him. This is an email from Gunnar. Um, said, I just listened to your episode on Alexander Third, and I noticed that you referred to the Norwegian king Harkon as a Viking. Did we? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh. From what I've read, I mean, me, to be fair, but probably both of us. Mm. From what I've read, 1066, when Harold Hardrada got his ass kicked at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, is usually used as marking end of the Viking Age in Norway, despite fans wearing those plastic, historically inaccurate horned helmets at football games. By 1066, some sort of standard European medieval monarchical rule had been established in the Nordic countries, i.e. they became Danes, Swedes and Norwegians, and traditional Viking raids stopped. Sorry for nitpicking. Well, it's it's this good point, but it is true. We're, yeah. we're sweeping generalisation. We call any Scandinavian <laughs> any, Viking. Yeah, they're not really Vikings at okay. this point. They're just European monarchs. Sorry to our Viking. I mean, uh, Nordic <laughs> listeners. Harry, I'm not sure if it's Harry Touche or Harry Touche. He doesn't seem to have the accent, but I know. I'll go with Touche. Like he sent us uh, a very interesting email. He said, Little story. I was in the car over in Wiltshire and passed an Athelstan Road in Malmesbury. Of course, I immediately thought of you guys, especially Ali's cluelessness about it. <laughs> Brackets. We all know he's the real brains, though. Anyway, I decided to have a quick Google, and it turns out there are quite a few. I'm a bit of a data geek. I work in analytics. So all this gave me the idea of a cheeky comparison. What if I went online and compared monarchs by the value of the houses on streets named after them? Oh, that is incredibly specific but brilliant so there's no Canute or half a Canute and he doesn't do like James I James II he conflates James James. Um, but otherwise he did look at all of them uh, the English ones particularly the average price compared to their longevity which he saw as being effectively the impact per year that they have (laughs) on house prices this guy is amazing again we'll post the link to this on Facebook and Twitter and WordPress and everything but it's really good it's a sort of a, a page that you can interact with and you can see on the map as well where all these houses are so it's interesting Athelstan you get a lot in the south yeah the I bet yeah 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 expect. spoiler alerts out on top is Edmund really £854,659 average house is that there's one street in Chelsea 315 properties so that's effectively £122,094 impact per year for the rain. <laughs> this is super. Very, very good. Thank you very much, Harry, for that. Um, yeah, send me the link. I'll post that on Facebook. And we've also heard from Hannah Averill, who you may recall we mentioned uh, a while ago who was uh, raising money to go out to Nepal yeah. and uh, raise money for AIDS orphan. And um, she got in touch saying, I'm flying out to Nepal on Tuesday, which was back previously so she'll be there now I wanted to say thank you again for all the support you gave me for the AIDS Orphan Trek I raised the £2,685 Boom! In total our team raised £17,549 for orphans who have lost their parents to AIDS and are now HIV positive themselves I'll be without the internet for a few weeks but I'll email you a picture of my listening to the podcast at five and a half thousand metres Yes I emailed her saying that she could be our highest listener That is, (laughs) that is Hold on to your trousers. That is superb. Well done, Hannah. Well done, Hannah. Some messages from our new Privy Councillors. Arise. Shan McCauley says, shouting out from New Zealand. G'day. To say, keep up the good work, boys. I'm glad you at last mentioned Henry II's foray into Tinseltown with the lion in winter. You what? Uh, This was after... Um, at the end of the English series. Oh. You haven't seen this film. But I can't believe no one brought up the Patrick Stewart Glenn Close remake from 2003. 
It's better than the O'Toole Hepburn version, brackets sacrilege, I know. When finished with Scotland, you should go back and comically review the films featuring Scottish-English monarchs. That's a great idea. That is a great idea. Though, I can't believe I wouldn't have seen the... I haven't seen the remake. Uh, With with Picard in it. With Picard in it, yes. I don't think it was as big. I think the line in winter, the 60s one with Peter O'Toole and... I've heard of that. Hepburn and... uh, What's his name? Timothy Dalton. No. Anthony Hopkins in his first cinema role. We should definitely, when we get our new secret weapon, record that. And yeah. Aaron Seagull said that the McWilliams, you remember that dynastic family that kept on... Having a go. Uh, ...kept showing up and were almost impossible to get rid of. They were the Dunstans of Scotland. Yeah. Uh, so Brendan says, My favourite episode so far have been Girick and or Yoki. Hashtag remember Ieth. Malcolm Third, the Inspector Rexford episode for Edward V. <laughs> and William Rufus. Yeah, Rufus is popular. Dilch und Wahr. Right, some behind-the-scenes uh, um, info there. I definitely 100% was not laughing at your name. It's because <laughs> I'm not sure if this will make the edit or not, but Graham said I'm going to have to cough for this one because he's got a tickly throat. And then did, said your name and it all made sense, so I laughed. Not laughing at your name. It's not his name. It means uh, thank you very much in Welsh. <sighs> his name's Brendan. I take it all back. And finally, Alistair Atkinson. Fortunately enough for me, I discovered you just before my AS-level history exams on the Saxons, so your episodes on those kings were a great help. Hi. Though I have to ask Ali why he doesn't seem to like Alfred the Great. Lack of scandal granted, he's the best. He's just not... I mean, I'm sorry, Privy Councillor... Well, Alistair, good name, BTW. Um, But just... And I said it before. Mud. (laughs) <laughs> so he's just too pious and he athelstan is i think what people think of alfred the great is athelstan they've gotten the wrong way around in their Even mind though you nearly didn't give athelstan that respect. I, was, I was very confused it was so early <laughs> anyway thank you all for your messages we love to hear yeah, from you please do, do get in touch um so that is it for margaret the maid of Norway. next time it will be john balliol are we gonna have a fortuna again Goodbye. (laughs) See you next time for more Edward the First. Cheerio. We could go out to that.